Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? I'm is Bill Combs, and I'm filling in for Dr. McCabe. I teach at the seminary also where he teaches. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this evening for the opportunity we have to study the Word of God. We ask your blessing upon us as we look into the Word that we might, by the help of the Holy Spirit, understand what your Word says. We might make the proper application to our own understanding, to our lives. It might enable us to serve you better and to live for you and to be more obedient to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to to uh, have a lesson this evening about the meaning of fellowship in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, you might think. Uh, there's a little bit of controversy about this, exactly what this term means, and it has an important bearing upon, I think, our Christian lives as we strive for Christian growth and so forth. Let me begin, we'll start by just reading 1 John chapter 1 here. Uh, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have heard, seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. I've given you kind of an outline page in the back there to kind of follow along as we go. I think the, I tried to list sort of the main concepts here. As I say, I want to talk about the meaning of this term fellowship here in 1 John. It's used uh, three times in verse 3. We proclaim that, uh, to you that what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Then in verse 6, uh, if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And then verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all, all of sin. The Greek term uh, that's used here in these three verses is the Greek term. You may have heard somebody talk about this. I just thought I'd mention it. It's pronounced koinonia. Sometimes people will use that term, koinonia. It's the term that's translated fellowship here in 1 John. And what I'm asking here in our study this evening is what exactly does John mean by this term koinonia, translated fellowship, and why is it important? Uh, it's important because of how it relates to the end of chapter 1, particularly verse 9. Verse 9 is a very well-known verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How does this idea of fellowship being in fellowship, as we hear, relate to this idea of confession of sin here in verse 9. 
a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, a lot of important doctrine depends upon how we view the relationship between fellowship in verse 9, and I mean verses 3, 3, 6, and 7, the first part of the chapter, and the idea of confession of sin in verse 9. Obviously, this confession of sin is an important part of our Christian life, our Christian experience. I would say that there are two interpretations here I've given you in B, two ways to interpret the concept of fellowship here in 1 John chapter 1. One is what I call the sanctification view. Now, by sanctification, if you're familiar with the terminology here, sanctification is a, is a term, a biblical term, that has to do with spiritual growth. We talk about our sanctification, we're talking about our spiritual growth, our development in the Christian life, Progressively, as we go through life, we become more sanctified. We grow in holiness and righteousness and so forth. There's a view that I call the sanctification view, and there's a view here that I call the salvation view of fellowship. So the sanctification view and the salvation view. First of all, I'll talk about the first view, the sanctification view. This is, I don't know, I'd say it's, I would usually say it's probably the dominant view it's not the dominant view where I teach. It's not been the dominant. Uh, not been the dominant. It was the view I was taught when I was saved and so forth. It's the dominant view probably in many churches and so forth. So it may be what you have heard or learned. Uh, I mean, I didn't. I, I don't. I should ask your pastor what he believes on this, but I'm sure he believes what I'm teaching here since he was a student. And I'm sure he believes everything I taught him. You know, I'm sure of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tell him that sometimes. You know. So, uh, so, uh, it, but it is common in various circles, and good, good people differ on this, how to interpret this, this particular view. Is it the sanctification view or the fellowship, or the salvation view? Let's, let's look, first of all, at the uh, sanctification view. Uh, uh, it's, as I say, it's been the prevailing view probably in, in the last 50 years in most churches, and, and it's, it's what's taught in a lot of Christian colleges and schools and so forth. Uh, I can remember hearing a lot of messages, a lot of preaching in my lifetime where people would be asked to come forward in an invitation and say, are you in fellowship with God? If you're not in fellowship with God, come forward and confess your sins or something like that. It would be, be kind of an invitation to make sure you're in a right relationship or in fellowship with God. Um, I say here in C here that the sanctification view I'm trying to define it now, understands fellowship, this idea, this word, in verses 3, 6, and 7, and the concept in those verses. It understands fellowship to be a particular condition or state of the Christian in which he enjoys the presence and blessings of God because all his sins are confessed. So, by confessing all of one's sins, one is in a right relationship with God, he's in fellowship with God. There's nothing between me and my Savior, so to speak. I'm, I'm right with God. I'm in fellowship with God. So the believer is said to be in fellowship with God because of confessed sin. And so when a believer is in fellowship with God, he experiences the blessings, the presence of God in a way beyond, in, in a way that's, that's greater than he would have, than he, than he normally has. He experiences it in a way beyond what he did when he was first saved, when he was born again. When we're saved, we're born again, 
we experience the presence of God, we come to know God. Well, this is a greater step. Uh, the condition, how do, you, how do you get this in fellowship? How do you get this greater position? The condition is in verse 7, it's walking in the light. If we walk in the light, then we have this fellowship with one another. That is, living in obedience to God's standard of truth. Therefore, any sin that the believer can... I'm explaining the sanctification view here. Any sin the believer commits causes the believer to lose that fellowship with God. He's no longer in fellowship, uh, and he's, he's out of fellowship with God. And so fellowship can be restored then by confessing that sin, confessing that particular sin. Uh, and so that's what I'm calling the sanctification view of fellowship. This is, I say, a very popular view. Uh, it was taught, for instance, in the Schofield Reference Bible. I go back to the days when everybody had a Schofield Reference Bible. That was the study Bible people had, and I had one and learned a lot from it and so forth. It was taught in the Schofield Reference Bible. It was popularized in Christian circles after, after Schofield a man by the name of Lewis Sperry Chaper, who uh, founded Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he wrote a lot of books. Uh, his pre his, his uh, successor there, John Walbert, wrote a number of books. Charles Ryrie, who taught at Dallas, Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, Ryrie Study Bible contains this particular view and so forth. Uh, and so that made it very popular. This is the, the real fountainhead, the real origin, goes back beyond, however, the writings of Chaper and Dallas Seminary at the beginning of this century. It goes back to what's called the Keswick theology. Does anybody ever, anybody ever talk about Keswick theology around here yet? Okay, well. Uh, Keswick theology is a, uh, is a view that developed in the latter part of the 19th century, in the 1890s. And that, in turn, came from what's called the Holiness Movement, and that, in turn, came from John Wesley. So John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, was very influential. He influenced what gradually came to be called the Holiness Movement in the middle of the 19th century, the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. That, that came into what's called the Keswick Movement in England, named for the place in England called Keswick, where they had an annual convention, a Keswick convention every year and up until modern times have still had it. Uh, Wesley taught a kind of perfectionism. Wesley, John Wesley believed that it was possible for a Christian to get to the place where he would not sin. Now Wesley never claimed it for himself. He taught it very clearly. You can read it. He's got a whole 45 or 50 pages on perfectionism in his works, his, his teaching on perfection. He believed that it was possible to get to the place in your Christian life where you would not sin. And uh, he said he knew people who had gotten there. He writes about this very candidly. He knew people who got there. And when he first came across this doctrine of perfectionism, he believed that when you got there, you couldn't lose it. You got to this state of perfectionism, and you'd be perfect for the rest of your life. So that was something to strive for. Well, later, people, he found out, lost it. <laughs> And the reason, the reason he came to that conclusion was because he saw it in their lives. They lost it. So he, he changed his view and said, okay, you can't lose it, but you can get it back. So he believed it's possible to get to a state where you're just kind of riding along above the clouds. You're not sinning. You're in a kind of state of perfectionism. This is sometimes called the second blessing. Uh, 
it's, it's often called that, or perfectionism and so forth. Well, that view, that uh, view that you could get to this state, maybe not of perfectionism, there are still people around the world today, Christians, who claim perfection, that you can, they can actually, I've talked to, I, I met a man who said he hadn't sinned since he was saved, since he was a Christian, he got, he got saved and he got to this state of perfectionism and he hadn't sinned, you know, amazing. Of course, this is wrong, <laughs> it's very seriously wrong, but he said that. Well, this, this eventually, it, 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 it came to the point where in the Keswick teaching, you didn't get to a state of perfectionism, but you got to a state where you were almost perfect. You didn't commit any known sin. Uh, you, you might commit sin, but you didn't commit any known sin, things like that. Here's what these teachers said. One of the most famous uh, of the Keswick teachers, this is built off Wesley and so forth, was a guy by the name of A.T. Pearson, a very famous preacher around the beginning of the 20th century. Here's what he said. There is that kind of sinless perfection in which every Keswick teacher believes. Now, if you, if, you, if, you, if you read about Keswick teaching, they'll say, we don't believe perfectionism. We don't believe Wesley was wrong. You can't ever get to the state where you never sin. But here's Pearson saying, there is a kind of sinless perfection. The sinless perfection of instantaneously and ever renouncing every known sin. So you, you can get to the place where you don't, you might commit sins you don't know about. You might accidentally sin, but you wouldn't commit any known <clears throat> sin. Here's another guy, Charles Inman. He said this, And it is possible to be so full of the Spirit that all bondage and all friction and all the fever of lust disappears. So full of the Spirit that selfishness and motive and intention and purpose and endeavors disappears. So full of the Spirit that all open and secret sympathy with sin disappears. So full of the Spirit that all conscious and willful resistance to God disappears. I wish that were true, but it's not true. There is no place in the Christian life, however much we progress in holiness, where sin is not a problem, where sin is not with us. <laughs> there is no place where sympathy to sin disappears. As long as we're in this, we have depravity, we're sinful creatures, there's always going to be the desire out there for sin. We're always going to have sympathy for sin. Now, it's less and less. We grow, become more mature. That's true. But we never get away from these desires and so forth. Um, my point is that this sanctification view of fellowship I've been talking about is built off this particular theology. Those who hold this sanctification of, of fellowship believe that when one is in fellowship, He's in a spiritual state of blessing beyond regeneration. He's in, okay, you got saved, you got born again. That's one state. Now you reach a new state where you're walking in the light, not committing sin, living on a higher plane. You're experiencing the blessings in the presence of God in a way that you didn't, you weren't before. So in this view, there are, there are sort of two tiers to the Christian life. You're either in or out of fellowship. Uh, so you're, you're, you're just a regular Christian or you're this kind of super Christian. You're, 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 you're living without any sort of almost known sin. You're not sinning at all. You don't have any desires to sin, no intents, you know, that kind of thing. Other words are used to describe this. You're either a carnal Christian or you're a spiritual Christian. You're filled with the Spirit or not filled with the Spirit. You're abiding in Christ or not abiding in Christ. There's a, there's a great dichotomy. You're one or the other. 
So, you have to examine yourself always. Where am I at? You go to the service the preacher preaches. Are you fully committed to Christ? Do you... Are you, is there any sin in your life? Come forward and make a dedication and get everything straightened out and be on this higher plane and so forth like that. Believe me, I lived in that world for a long time and it was very frustrating. This is held by sincere Christians. Uh, I think this view of fellowship is wrong. I think what I've just been teaching is wrong, but, but it's certainly held by sincere people who are trying to pursue holiness, who want to please God, but I think it's really ultimately harmful to real spiritual growth and what the Bible really teaches about spiritual maturity. The correct view, I think, of interpreting fellowship, as we'll see, is what I call the salvation view of fellowship, as I have it here uh, in number F there. This view says that uh, the term fellowship in 1 John refers to the joint participation in a common life with God and fellow Christians. To be in fellowship means that we are sharing in a common life with God and fellow Christians. <clears throat> so to have fellowship or be in fellowship here is equivalent to being saved. That's why I call it the salvation view. To be in fellowship is to be saved because to be in fellowship is to share a common life, eternal life, with other believers and God. Um, this is the way this whole passage was understood until the rise of John Wesley, the Keswick theology, and so forth. It's the way I'm trying to explain it this evening. So what I'm trying to do this evening, I want to present two reasons to you are two proofs why I think this, this salvation view is right. This is the right view, and this sanctification view is the wrong view. And then I want to try to show you, kind of walk through 1 John and see how that works. So let's do that here. First of all, the first argument or proof that I want to say shows that the salvation view is right, is the meaning of the term fellowship itself in the context of chapter 1. So we're going to look first of all, what does this word mean, koinonia, that I've been talking about, and what does it mean here in chapter 1? Now first we need to distinguish between the English word fellowship and the Greek word. That's why I gave you the Greek word so we could just talk about it here, the Greek word koinonia. The English word, as I say here, if you look at Webster's 11th, Collegiate Dictionary says that the English word fellowship means companionship, company, community of interest, activity, feelings, or experience. Most often the English word fellowship speaks of enjoying one another's company. We talk about, let's have a fellowship after church. We're going to get together, we're going to have some food, we're going to enjoy one another's company. We go out to uh, dinner. The McCaves and, and I, we went out Monday night and got some pizza. We had some fellowship together. We enjoyed one another's company and so forth like that. We shared feelings and experiences. This is not what's suggested by the Greek term, however. This is not exactly what's suggested. The, the English term fellowship once meant what the Greek term means, but it, it no longer really means that. Uh, Webster's Dictionary says that the word fellowship once meant partnership. 
partnership, but that meaning is now obsolete in English, at least that's what uh, the 11th Legion Dictionary says here. Um, so let's look at the Greek word here and see exactly what it means. As I've already said, it occurs in verse 3, in verse 6, and verse 7. The Greek word is that word koinonia. It generally means to have in common or to share, to be a joint participant. As I say here, I think I've got it, uh, if I can give the definition exactly. Or I say to have something in common with someone is the general idea. To have something in common with, with someone. Um, what I'm trying to say here is that the English term is very similar, but it has more of a weaker idea of enjoying one another's company, while the Greek term speaks of a somewhat stronger sense, tangibly, and actually something shared between two or more people, something actually like a partnership. In other words, if you look at the word in Greek as it was used, in the New Testament, it's used actually three times here, 16 other times in the New Testament. And if you look outside the New Testament, what, what did they call koinonia? Business partnerships were called koinonia. So we don't usually say when two people enter into a, into a business relationship, we don't call it a fellowship, we call it a partnership. Because it's a stronger term, isn't it? I mean, when you enter into, into a business relationship, it's not just a fellowship, it's a legal partnership. What I'm saying is the Greek word is stronger. It's the idea of partnership. It was used of marriages, and even sexual intercourse was called koinonia because it's a very strong relationship and not, not something lesser like we think of just we had some fellowship together. Now, in the New Testament, we have the noun, koinonia. We have the verb used. And I've given you and see here a couple of instances here of the verb. For instance, in 2 John 11, John says, beginning in verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares. He's a partner in his wicked work. Philippians 4.15, Paul again uses the verb form of fellowship to, to have fellowship. He says, Moreover, as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Uh, in E here, uh, oh, in D here, I'm sorry, we can look at the Philippians 1, 4, and 5. Paul says, here's the noun form. Uh, the noun koinonia is the same word we have here in 1 John. Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray because of your partnership in the gospel. That's the word that's translated fellowship here. Because of your fellowship, your partnership. They were partners with Paul because they gave money, they supported him in the gospel work. Hebrews 13, 16 says, And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifice God is well pleased. So the word means to share with someone in something. Now let's try to plug that meaning into the context of 1 John chapter 1. But we should first of all note in 1 John chapter 1 that the three times that this word koinonia is used here in 3, 6, and 7, it's used absolutely. Now notice what I mean. Notice verse 3. It says, We proclaim to you 
what we have seen and heard so that you might also have fellowship with us. We're not told directly what we share. See, it, I said koinonia means to share with someone in something. Paul told the Philippians they were sharers in the gospel, partners in the gospel. That's what they shared. They shared the gospel together. Uh, but here, it's used absolutely without any object. We're not actually told what we're to share. It just says in verse 3 that you may have fellowship. You may be a partner with us. Well, what are you, what are you partnering with here? In verse 6, we're told that we may have fellowship with him. And in verse 7, that we might have fellowship with one another, that is, with other believers. But again, we're not told directly, what is it that we share with the Father, the Son, and other believers? What we share has to be gotten from the context here. Now let's look at the context. The major emphasis in these beginning verses of chapter 1 is on eternal life. That's the context here. Notice verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So that's the climax of verse 1. He climaxes with, we're proclaiming to you about the word of life. And then it's emphasized in verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it in the person of Christ. We saw this life, this life of God, and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. See, there's, there's, the, there's, the, there's the central idea we're talking about. We proclaim concerning the word of life. It's called eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us in Jesus Christ, this eternal life appeared. And then in verse 3, it's picked up and repeated again with a repetition of the phrase, Repetition of the phrase, we proclaim, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. That's that eternal life. So that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So from the context, it's clear here that what believers share with God and with other believers is eternal life. We have fellowship with God. We share with God in this eternal life. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have the eternal life. We share in the life of God. We're partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. So we have this eternal life. We share that with other believers and with God. So it seems like that from the context, what we're sharing here is the very life of Christ. Now, one translation, I didn't put it down here, but it's interesting, the New English Bible, Notice how they translate verse 3. Now, they paraphrase it, but I'm, I'm giving it because it helps my cause here a lot. <laughs> but listen to how they translate verse 3. It says, What we have seen and heard we declare to you so that you and we together may share in a common life, that life which we share with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So koinonia, <coughs> fellowship, means sharing in a common life with God and other believers. If that's true, then koinonia equals salvation. It has to do with our initial coming to faith in Christ. We share in eternal life. Fellowship in eternal life. Fellowship in eternal life is true of all believers. All believers share in eternal life with God and other believers. So to have fellowship with God and other believers is to share in eternal life with them. 
So the meaning of the term fellowship in the context of chapter 1 argues for what I call the salvation view, that fellowship is talking about salvation. That when he says having fellowship, it means to have this eternal life. So the reason for believing that the salvation view is correct, as I'm trying to argue here, is first of all the meaning of the Greek term in the context of chapter 1. A second reason, I believe, that this view is the correct view is the overall purpose of 1 John. The overall purpose of 1 John. So let's look at the overall purpose of 1 John. In other words, I'm saying whatever John teaches in chapter 1 would certainly be in agreement with what he teaches in the rest of the book. He's not teaching one thing in chapter 1 and something opposite in the rest of the, of the epistle. Now John actually has a number of purpose statements throughout this epistle here. He'll say sometimes, like in chapter 1, verse 4, notice he says, we write this to make our joy complete. That's one reason he writes. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. But everybody agrees, pretty much everybody who studies this agrees, that the these are probably secondary or subordinate purposes to the main purpose. Most people agree that the main purpose for John's writing is found in chapter 5 and verse 13. And I have it down here for you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is saying, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it may seem a little strange to say, why would John wait to the end of his epistle to tell us why he's writing this book? Well, John does the same thing in his gospel. In the gospel of John, John doesn't tell us why he's writing the gospel until the very end of the book. You remember in John chapter 20, at the end of the gospel, John tells us there why he wrote his gospel. Nobody disagrees about this as far as I know. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written. Actually, verse 30 says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Remember, the book is built around sort of seven signs or seven sign miracles. Well, Jesus did a lot more that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this epistle. It's really an evangelistic kind of book. I'm writing so that you can read this and know that Jesus is the Christ and that you can believe in him and have life in his name. So John waits to the end. And most, I think everyone agrees, that we see the same thing in 513 that John waits to the end here to tell us in 1 John why he's writing. And that is, as he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, one commentator says this. He says, uh, the purpose of John's gospel is evangelistic, as I just said, to lead men to a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The purpose of the epistle is pastoral, 
to lead believers into a full understanding and assurance of their salvation. I'm writing these things, John says in 1 John chapter 5, I'm writing these things to you who believe so that you can know, you can have assurance that you actually have eternal life. We all make professions of faith. Okay, that's a profession. How do we know that profession is true or genuine? It's a profession, but anybody can make a profession. A lot of people make professions. How do we know that profession is genuine or true? Is there any way to test that? And that's what John is saying. I'm going to give you some ways to test that. They're not infallible ways. They're not infallible ways, but they're helpful ways that we and others can look at our profession and say, that looks like a genuine profession of faith. And so he gives us some of the reasons here. Um, so, John is going to give us a series of tests to apply to our Christian profession of faith. Now, if you just read 1 John through, if you've ever read it, you'll see John is giving test after test after test by which we can examine our profession to see if it's genuine. Now, my point here is to say that these are tests of salvation. They're tests of whether you have salvation or not. They're not tests of spirituality. These are not tests to determine if you're a good Christian or a poor Christian. If you're a really dedicated Christian or you're not so dedicated Christian. They're not tests like that at all. They're just tests to see, do you have eternal life or you don't? Are you in the family of God or are you not in the family of God? It's one or the other. That's all they're testing for. Uh, they're not tests to, to, to determine whether you're out of fellowship because of unconfessed sin. They're not and, and, and the, we'll see these tests. They're not tested to see whether you're in fellowship or out, out of fellowship because of unconfessed sin. Well, let's begin in chapter 5 and work back here. And I have, uh, I have, uh, I think I listed here, uh, yeah, C. I say, uh, as we, as we kind of work through the epistle here, I'm going to read some verses and kind of work backward here, work backward from the front to the back. Uh, I propose he has three major tests. Practicing righteousness, this is C on page two there, practicing righteousness, loving one another, and believing the truth about Jesus Christ. So as we just kind of read some verses, I think you'll see he's saying that a genuine believer is somebody who practices righteousness. That is, they try to, they try to live a holy life. They're not sinless, but they're trying to do the right thing. They are loving one another. They're loving their brethren. They're, they're trying to help out their fellow Christians. And they believe the truth. They don't have any questions. They believe the truth about Jesus Christ. They don't doubt the truth about Christ. Well, let's just, let's just start from the back, because 5.13 said, but 5.13 said, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. But let's look back at verse 12. Start right back there. He who has the Son has life. He has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. So to have the Son here means to believe on the Son, to accept what is true about the Son. Someone who says, you know, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm going to heaven. I'm afraid they're not making it. They're not making it. If you don't have the Son, you don't have it. That's John's test here. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1 here. Okay, I'll, I'll read it to you here. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. So you have to believe that Jesus Christ is, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he is come from God, he's the Messiah, that's truth about Christ. If you believe the truth of what the Bible teaches about him, then he says you are born of God. There's, a, there's one test. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 15. I'm working backwards here. I don't have time to read the whole book here, but I'm just giving one test after another. Verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, he's deity, he's the Son of God, God lives in him and he is in God. This is a true believer. You know, A true believer believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God and so forth. He believes all the Bible teaches there. Chapter 4, verse 7, we're going backwards. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Well, let's go back to chapter 3. We're keep going back. I'm, I'm just trying to say that these are a series of tests here. Chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. That's We, we passed from unbelief to belief. We're, we were lost, now we're saved. Because we love our brothers. brothers. Anyone who does not love his brother love remains in death. And anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. No, no murderer has eternal life in him. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue in sin. He doesn't say no one who is born of God will never sin. He just says will continue or practice sin. Because God's seed remains in him. And he cannot go on sinning. So the Christian does not have a lifestyle of sin like the unbeliever. There's a distinction between the, the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever is a slave to them, not the, not the believer. He's not continuing in a life of sin. He does sin, but he repents and seeks to make restitution and make it better. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him. We know that we've been saved if we obey his commands. The Christian is a person who seeks to obey the commands of Christ in the Scripture. The man who says, I know him, oh, I know him, I'm a Christian, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So these are tests. So again, these are tests not designed to determine the relative spiritual condition of genuine believers, but to determine if one is a believer. Are you a believer or not? They are tests of salvation. Therefore, it would be rather odd if chapter 1 were not a test of salvation. That's my point. If we go back to chapter 1, I think what we're going to find is another test of salvation. And it does give us a test of salvation. Bert, I mentioned to you here in D here, right on page 2 above Roman numeral 3 here, the test in chapter 1 deals with the Christian's attitude towards sin. The test in chapter 1 deals with the Christian's attitude toward sin. A genuine believer will have a right attitude towards sin. What we might call a sin-confessing attitude. So, a believer will have a right attitude towards sin. That's the, that's the test here. What is our attitude towards sin? A genuine believer will have the right attitude. He will have a sin-confessing attitude. Now, let's, if that's true, what I've said is true, 
Then let's plug that into <coughs> chapter one, the argument here of chapter one, our last thing, and just see how that works out in our discussion here. In verses one through four of, of 1 John here, we have a prologue or an introduction to the epistle, verses one through four. Uh, it's, it's, it's very similar to what we have in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, verses 118, is called the prologue or introduction to the epistle. And both of those introductions deal with the same, uh, same issue, the incarnation, Christ becoming man, Christ taking upon human flesh. Now notice in verse 1 through 3, the, we, in verse 1 the theme is introduced, the incarnate Son. That which was from the beginning, that's Christ, it sounds a lot like John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, looked at, and our hands have touched, that's Christ, come incarnate in the flesh, concerning the Word of life. We, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. So verse 1, we introduce the theme. Verse 2, the theme is repeated. John enlarges upon the phrase, the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life in Christ, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now in verse 3, John gives the purpose of his proclamation. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This, the fellowship, the koinonia John has in mind, is the eternal life, the salvation, that his readers share with God and other believers. Now in verse 5, John gives the theological basis for fellowship. What is the basis for this sharing in eternal life? This is the message. He first states it positively. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Here's the basis for this sharing eternal life. God is light, and then he states it negatively. In him there is no darkness at all. Obviously to say that God is light means God is holy. It means that there is, to say God is light means and, and in him there is no darkness is to acknowledge God's absolute holiness, his complete separateness from sin, no pain of sin. Therefore, those who have fellowship with God, who, those who share in a common life with God, those who are saved, are naturally going to reflect God's character. If God is holy, there is no sin in him, then we're supposed to reflect that. Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, that's the unsaved condition. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Okay. You were once darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And so, there is no darkness in him. We're not supposed to cater to that darkness or sin. Then in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, we find the first test of fellowship. The first test of fellowship, a right attitude towards sin. The Christian will have a right attitude toward sin. Now, in these verses, John draws out an important implication from the preceding verses. 
if one claims to share in the life of God, it's going to be reflected in his or her life, particularly, John says, in their attitude towards sin. The one who enjoys fellowship with God, the one who, who, has, who shares an eternal life with God, will have this proper attitude, this biblical attitude towards sin. In order to explain this biblical attitude, or this proper attitude, John discusses three errors here. I mentioned in D, E, and F here, under number three here. Three errors in regard to sin. Here's the wrong way. Here's some wrong attitudes. He's going to, talk, he's going to give us the proper attitude in a moment, a sin-confessing attitude. But first he's going to talk about the wrong attitudes. And each is introduced by the phrase, if we claim, if we claim, if we claim, in verses 6, 8, and 10. The first era I have called here the era of antinomianism. Remember that term? Antinomianism means against law, literally, against law. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of person, it's a theological term used to describe a person who says, there is no real law binding me. I can do what I want to do. Uh, God doesn't really care. God doesn't have any laws. God doesn't have any commands. We can do. You say, has anybody ever believed that? There have been Christians in church history, people who profess to be Christians, who who claimed to believe. There were there were people in the first century, in the second century, called Gnostics. Some of them who claimed this idea that that really. Uh, they said the body is basically sinful. It's what's inside that counts. What I do with my body, does it, it, I can do whatever I want to with my body. I can sin with it all I want to because the soul is what's important, and that can't be touched by the body, and so I can do whatever I want to with the body. They claim that kind of thing. John's dealing with that partly in this epistle here. There have been those who claim that kind of thing. And so John is saying here, uh, this is an error of saying that we can do whatever we want. God doesn't have any laws or principles or rules or commands for us. Notice what he says. If we claim, verse 6, to have fellowship, to share an eternal life with God, to be a Christian, with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now the term walk is used here figuratively in the sense of live. It's in, in the present tense in the Greek language. It speaks of a habitual act a continuing kind of lifestyle. If we walk, if we live as a manner of life, if our lifestyle is one where we say, I can just walk in sin, I can do what I want to. So if one claims to enjoy fellowship with God, if one claims to be a Christian, a believer, to be born again, and yet live a life of habitual sin, seemingly with no bother, no, no conscience, Disregard the commands about holiness. John concludes that person's a liar. There are people like that. I remember your pastor talking to me about a certain person in his family who had this attitude. I can live like I want to. Amazingly, you know, and I'm still a Christian. John says that person is a liar. We lie and do not live by the truth. There is no truth in that person. He's not a genuine believer. So here's a test of whether you're a believer or not. The person who lives habitually in sin 
and says it doesn't matter how I live or whatever, that person's a liar. He's not a true Christian. He doesn't have fellowship with God. The second error is verse 8, what we might call the error of inherent goodness. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The word sin is used here in the singular and speaks of the principle of sin, not particular acts of sin, but the principle of sin. So the error here is the denial of the principle of sin within. It's a denial that we have a sinful nature. If we claim to be without sin, we don't have any sinful tendencies, we don't have any sinful nature. John says we are deceiving ourselves if we say that. We're just totally deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's no truth in that person. That person's not a genuine believer. The third error in verse 10 is what we call the error of perfectionism. If we claim we have not sinned, I tell you, I met a guy once who said, I have not sinned. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So this, this error claims that a person may live without committing acts of sin. It's different from verse Eight. Verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, no sin principle, no sin nature, this one says, we have not committed acts of sin. It's a little different. We live without committing individual acts of sin. It makes God a liar because he says throughout his word that we are sinners, for all have sinned, and are, present tense, coming short of the glory of God. And John says his word has no place in us because the person who makes that kind of claim is not a genuine believer yet. The word has no place in that person. Now, in contrast to these erroneous views of sin, notice verse 9 says that a genuine believer, that is the one who has fellowship with God, will have a proper attitude towards sin, what I call a sin-confessing attitude or disposition. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. <coughs> One commentator says this, The proper Christian attitude to sin is not to deny it, but to admit it, and then to receive the forgiveness which God has made possible and promises to us. Another commentator says this, Although the statement lies in a conditional clause, it does say if, it has the force of a command or obligation. We ought to confess our sins, and if we do, he is faithful and just. Now the object of the confession of verse 9 is sin, if we confess our sins. The plural shows that John is thinking about individual acts of sin. Now remember I said this sanctification view of fellowship, which I, I, I was trying to say I believe is wrong, says that a believer who is out of fellowship with God is brought back into fellowship by confession of the sin that caused the fellowship to be broken. But verse 9 says nothing about restoration of fellowship. It doesn't say if we confess our sins, we will restore the fellowship. Now it's true that a believer needs to confess his sins and omissions. But I'm just saying that has nothing to do with the term fellowship as John is using it. It's true we've got to confess our sins, but it doesn't bring us back into fellowship because as John uses the term fellowship, that's salvation. We're already saved. We have eternal life. As I've tried to demonstrate, fellowship is a sharing by the believer with God and other believers in a common life. Nothing can break that common life, that eternal fellowship. 
Verse 9 gives the proper attitude of a genuine believer towards sin. He will, she will confess sin. The true believer will have a sin-confessing attitude. Now, we can fall away for a while. We can grow cold. We can backslide. But ultimately, God will chasten us. He'll bring us back. And we'll begin to see that we're wrong. And we'll, we'll confess our sin. And this gives us assurance of salvation, you see. The fact that we have this attitude towards sin. And we marvel. Don't we marvel? If you've lived long enough, you marvel at people in the workplace who just live lives of sin and seemingly have no conscience about it at all. You know, we just can't do that. <laughs> Sometimes we wish in our minds we could do it, but we just can't do it. God just won't allow us to do it. There's something he has done inside of us that won't permit that. Now, some people have misunderstood verse 9 to mean that, that it's written to unbelievers telling them how they can be saved. Sometimes this verse is misused to say, in order to get saved, you have to confess your sins. That is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, and so this is how we can get saved. Uh, there are a number of problems with that view, but that's not what this, this verse is talking about. This view is not talking about how to be saved. Um, let me just say this kind of starkly. No one has ever been saved by confessing, simply confessing his or her sins. No one is saved simply by confessing their sins. If you could be saved by confessing your sins, then most Roman Catholics would be saved because they go to the confessional all the time and they confess their sins. But confessing sins itself is not, does not bring about salvation. Uh, if you had to confess every one of your sins to be saved, you know, how would you know if you forgot one <laughs> or, or you admitted one or something? Um, no, the way to be saved, the means of salvation is repentance of sin. That means I, I realize I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong, and I'm turning from that. I'm turning from sin, and I'm placing my faith and trust in Christ, his work on the cross, to forgive me. Now, it, it's true that I don't want to make too strong a dichotomy here because often when we come to Christ, our minds will be filled with sins we've committed. We may say, God, I'm sorry for this. I wish I wouldn't have done that. We may confess sins, you know. Uh, that, that'll happen, naturally. But it's not the confessing of every individual sin that brings salvation. It's the confession that we're sinners, we've done wrong, we're repenting, we're turning from sin, and we're turning to Christ. Um... But why does a believer have to confess his sins to God? What, what's the reason for that? After all, verse 7 says, notice, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, we share an eternal life, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. And that's true. The sins of every Christian, of me and you, every Christian, past, present, and future have already been forgiven at the moment of salvation. We have a perfect standing with God. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. So why do we have to confess our sin? Well, because God looks at us in various ways. Our relationship with God can also be viewed in a familial way, in a family way. We are children in the family of God. So yes, we're in the family of God. Nothing can change that. Ultimately, all sins are forgiven because... 
we've got perfect righteousness, we're going to heaven and all that. But God also looks at us and he knows that Bill Combs is still commits sins. He's a sinner. And those sins have to be dealt with in the family of God. And as we sin against God, God convicts us of our sins. We know it's wrong. He tells us it's wrong. He convicts us it's wrong. The Spirit convicts, and we must confess those sins. Repentance of these sins, confession of these sins, is essential to our spiritual growth, to our, to our sanctification. As we progress in holiness, we will sin less and less. But we're never going to reach the state in this life where we never sin. We're never going to reach the state where we, we, we have some sort of absolute uh, no, no need for forgiveness. So, as far as the Christian is concerned, his justification, his standing before God, he's perfect, he has forgiveness. But there's another kind of forgiveness, forgiveness from the daily defilement of sin as a member of the family of God. And those sins have to be cleansed by confession of God. Remember, Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer in Luke 11. He said, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. So a Christian does have to confess his sins. He does have to mortify, put to death sin in his life. So let me just conclude here and say... Um, You may be confused here a little bit because uh, I have said that this term fellowship here is talking about sharing an eternal life. It's not talking about the view that says we get in and out of fellowship by confessing of our sins, even though that we do have to confess our sins. What I'm arguing against here is that John is just using the term fellowship in a different sense than we maybe commonly hear it. I mean, many people do this. We'll say... You know, John over here, he's out of fellowship with God. And we, what we mean by that, there's something lacking in his life. He's not spiritually right. I don't, I don't get upset when people say that. I don't say that. <laughs> because I don't think that's how John is using the term. But I don't get upset with that. I know what they mean. There's a problem there. I'm just saying that's not exactly how John is using the term fellowship here. Fellowship means to share an eternal life and we're in fellowship with God. We, yeah, John does need to confess his sin. He needs to be in a right relationship with God again. He needs to repent and so forth. But I don't think that's what John is saying here uh, when he is uh, talking about you know, fellowship in, in 1 John chapter 1. It's, I think it's confusing to talk about being in and out of fellowship, that kind of thing, because there's not two tiers in the Christian life. There are many... Things. We're, we're making a progress in the Christian life. We're not either either or or. We're all on this path, hopefully, towards holiness, and we're not in one camp or the other. We're Christians. We're all saved. We're at different levels in our sanctification, our spiritual growth, and we have to confess our sins and obey God in order to make progress in our daily lives and to walk in the light, as John says here, obey God and so forth. But I've gone over here, so let me close and just Father, thank you for our time together this evening, and we pray that our lives might be such as reflected, as John's talking about here in 1 John, that we might have the right attitude towards sin, a sin-confessing attitude, one in which we're willing to admit our sin, repent of our sin, turn from sin, to trust Christ, to grow in holiness and righteousness, and to love and obey you as we should. We pray in Christ's name.